Uh, remember to comment below, say hello in the chat to everyone, visit with each other during this. It's good that we can be here together. I'm sorry we can't be face-to-face, but uh, this is better than nothing. Uh, we're going to be in Luke 6. We're going back into the book of Luke, Luke chapter 6, and it's going to be verses 36 through 38 if you want to turn there ahead of time. I, uh, I've been thinking a lot about our situation this week, how we are faced with the challenge of thinking about church differently. Um, I hope that many of you are seeing and viewing your house as a church building of sorts, that in your very neighborhood that your house serves as the church building. And I believe that God is using this time to help us reevaluate what's really important in our lives, what's really important and what matters to God. And I've been really happy to hear about how many of you uh, have been doing things like uh, keeping a dedicated prayer time, doing the reading homework, and uh, supporting each other through calls and running errands for one another. I've been really happy to see that many of us are taking charge of our own spiritual growth uh, because things have just changed. We can't do church the same old way during this season. You know, the one thing across the board that I can say with confidence that most people say is the critical piece, the main piece in their fellowship with God is their own alone time with the Lord through prayer and through reading of the word. And many people say that that's when the biggest heart changes have happened in their life is through their quiet times, one-on-one time with God. And so I hope this encourages you to make sure that that is a priority in your life, especially during this season, uh, that you learn to value this time with the Lord and uh, that you keep it consistent, that you protect that time. If you haven't already done so, I think now would be the time to brush off the old practice of silent listening, quiet listening to the Lord, attending to what God is saying to us. And uh, you can do it right there in your home, You can do it in your yard, you can do it on a walk, you can do it anywhere, active listening to the Lord. And and please uh, share what you hear with us, either through a call or through email or on our Facebook page. I I want to hear from you guys, especially those who are um, active in that practice. I want to also encourage everyone to uh, take ownership of God's personal mission he has for you right now. What role do you have in the body? Are you an encourager? Who are you encouraging? Are you a prayer warrior? Who are you praying for? Do they know you're praying for them? Do you like to help people? Who is in your neighborhood that you can help? Everyone has a job. And no job is too small and no job is too big. And if you're having a difficult time figuring out your role in all of this, let's talk. I love to help people figure out what their job is in the body of Christ. During this season, I've wondered, I know that this season causes us to reevaluate things. I wonder if the rest of the world is reevaluating things. We are having to practice social distancing because... uh, because of an issue of sickness and, and possible death. It causes us to reevaluate things in our life, to think about our mortality, to think about things in eternity. 
I wonder if there are people in our community who are hungering for something more. Are there people who are now open to faith in Jesus? And I wonder for you, who comes to your mind when you think of somebody like this? When you think about somebody who needs Jesus right now? And as they come to your mind, pray for them. Pray for that person. Say their name to the Lord multiple times. We may have to keep social distance from each other, but God does not have to keep social distance. And we can pray with great faith and confidence knowing that Jesus wants to be in their life. So pray for it. Some of us may have to do some battle in prayer for that person, but if you don't pray for them, who is going to? If we don't pray for them, who will pray for them? I don't know what effect this will all have uh, on our community. Will it mean more people will come to church? Will it mean less people coming to church? Will there be any change at all? I don't know. I don't know the future, but I am confident in one thing. I am confident that God wants us to pray now. I know that for sure. And, and that, that gives me hope because all great spiritual awakenings were preceded by prayer. Every great spiritual awakening, prayer happened first. There were no great Christian movements without first having a season of prayer. Prayer for the lost, prayer for the prodigals, prayer for our own hearts. We need to be ready. If people do start coming to the faith, we need to be ready. We need to be prepared. We need to have our hearts ready for something like that. We need to be ready to love people. We need to be ready to disciple people. We need to model for them what a life with Jesus looks like. And so that's where we're going to pick up today in Luke 6, because this is where Jesus continues to describe what he wants a life with him to look like. We're in a section in Luke where Jesus' ministry is starting to ramp up. Word about him is spreading throughout the region, and and crowds of people are being drawn to him. And his power is reversing the effects of sin and the fall. People are being healed of their diseases. People are being healed of evil spirits. His words have great authority, which comes as no surprise to us because we know and believe that he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. So, of course, his words have authority. And as these crowds gather, his invitation is that all these people would become his disciples. He wants us to dedicate ourselves to becoming his students, that we would position ourselves to always learn from him, to remain teachable for our whole lives of service to him, that we would dedicate ourselves to his mission at no matter what the cost is to us. And in fairness, he makes it clear to us that in order to be his disciple, if you're going to be his disciple, it means persecution. It means difficulty. It means hardship. He says earlier in chapter 6 that you will be poor. You will be hungry. You will weep. You will be hated and you will be rejected just like your Lord and Master. However, he does promise to reward you. And he goes on to say later that if you follow him, you are to love your enemies. You're to love those who persecute you. 
You're to respond back to your enemy with love. He says to bless even when you're cursed. He says if you're struck on one cheek, you turn to the other side and let them strike the other as well. He says to be generous and lend, expecting nothing back, to be sacrificial. He wants us to show kindness even when confronted with hatred. But he continues to reiterate, he will reward you for this. So how's it sounding so far? Does anybody want to join this? These are not just some lofty ideas, some ideals for us to kind of ponder and think about. Jesus literally did these things. He modeled them for us, especially on the cross, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. What Jesus is doing here in this Sermon on the Plain, as they call it in Luke, that he is laying out what he wants his church to look like. He's casting the vision of what God's people are supposed to be like. And this week might be the most difficult piece of them all. He's talking about having grace and mercy towards others. He's talking about forgiveness. And it's a big issue. It's a big subject to God. It matters a lot to God. So before we get into it, let's pray. Jesus, I, I feel in, incapable of emphasizing how big this subject is to you. So I pray by your spirit and through your word that you make it clear to us your desire for forgiveness in our lives. That, Lord, people hear, hear it from your lips. We pray that you give us the strength and the power and ability to forgive others as you have forgiven us. And we thank you so much for your forgiveness and grace towards us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So the scene in this section of Luke is all these crowds have come to Jesus and he turns to his disciples and he explains all these things. So we have received his healing touch. We have been rescued from evil. And now he explains all these things to us and he says, be merciful in verse 36, just as your father is merciful. And he says, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. It sounds like forgiveness is a huge deal to God. Can we agree on that? And first, I want to try to talk a little bit about what it's not saying here and try to talk about what it is actually saying here. Because here in this section is the two most uh, misquoted verses in all of Scripture. The first one is, do not judge or you will be judged. I think it actually sounds better in the King James, you know, judge not lest ye be judged. And the way people tend to want to use that verse is, is to use it as a shield. It's typically used by people who want to prevent others from evaluating their morals or their lifestyle, basically saying, hey, I can do whatever I want, and you cannot tell me it's wrong. Leave me alone. But Jesus 
never says that it's okay to do whatever you want. He's not saying to leave people alone either. In Scripture, there are obvious moral standards that are plainly laid out for us. It's not talking about saying what's right or wrong. And in another way, this verse is used as a mirror, basically saying, hey, look at yourself. Judge not, don't judge me, judge yourself. You have no right to criticize me. So what does this mean, do not judge and do not condemn? What he means by this is do not be harsh with people. Do not act superior or self-righteous with people. Do not squash them. We need to remember that once we were alienated from God and were enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior, we needed grace and we needed mercy too. Many of you know that I have come out of a life of addiction. It's been almost 20 years now. And during my addictive life, I did immoral things. I did unethical things. I did not know how to cope with my life. And I, and I had not found Jesus yet. I wasn't walking with Jesus. And I, I, acted, I acted out exactly how someone would expect someone like me to act out. Why should anyone expect me to act like a Christ follower if I was not following Christ? And I think that that's what Jesus is trying to capture by saying, do not judge. He's saying, have understanding of where people are at. Hold the standard of God, but be gentle with people. Understand where people are in their relationship to God. God is the judge, not us. We will all be judged. We will all be condemned. But there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. And if we were judged solely on our works alone, we would all be condemned. But because of Jesus, we are forgiven. This is the good news message that we live by. And this is what we proclaim. The other misquoted verse here is give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down and running over. I've been in many church circles and a few church circles where this verse is used to talk about money. Like it's about faith giving. I've heard it sung during the offering, during a church service, as if it was some financial investment strategy. It is not. This is not talking about money. This is not saying the more money you give God, the more money he will give you. Sorry. The context of this verse is actually talking about something much more valuable. It is talking about forgiveness. Preceding this verse was forgive and you will be forgiven. That is a scary thought to me. Have you stopped and thought about what that is saying? Is it saying, if I do not forgive, that I will not be forgiven? The choice is clear. We, we either have the opportunity to measure others harshly, or we can measure others generously. There is a sobering tone to this, though, isn't there? It sounds like we will be judged with the same measure that we judge others. We will be condemned with the same measure that we condemned others. 
It sounds like we will be forgiven with the same measure of forgiveness that we offered to others. Is this the case? Is that what it's saying? Let's listen to another um, passage where Jesus talks about forgiveness, and he lays out a parable. It's the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. And I'm going to read it out of the message because the message just uh, modernizes the dollar amount in the parable. And when you hear it, you'll understand if you've never heard it before. But he uh, translates this accurately, I believe. So here's the parable of the unforgiving servant. Peter one day asked Jesus, Master, how many times do I forgive a brother or a sister who hurts me? Seven? Jesus replied, seven? Hardly. Try 70 times seven. And he says this parable, the kingdom of God is like a king who decided to square accounts with his servants. As he got underway, one servant was brought before him who had run up a debt of $100,000. He couldn't pay up. So the king ordered the man, along with his wife, children, and goods to be auctioned off at the slave markets. The poor wretch threw himself at the king's feet and begged, give me a chance and I'll pay it all back. Touched by his plea, the king let him off, erasing the debt. The servant was no sooner out of the room when he came upon one of his fellow servants, one who owed him $10. He seized him by the throat and demanded, pay up now. The poor wretch threw himself down and begged, Give me a chance, and I'll pay it all back. But he wouldn't do it. He had him arrested and put in jail until the debt was paid. When the other servants saw what was going on, they were outraged and brought a detailed report to the king. The king summoned the man and said, You evil servant, I forgave your entire debt when you begged me for mercy. Shouldn't you be compelled to be merciful to your fellow servant who asked for mercy? The king was furious and put the screws to the man until he paid back his entire debt. And that's exactly what my father in heaven is going to do to each one of you who does does not forgive unconditionally anyone who asks for mercy. Again, it's a sobering parable about forgiveness. This parable makes it crystal clear that it is not okay for us to accept forgiveness from God for ourselves and then not offer it to others. It is not okay to accept forgiveness for yourself and then not offer it then to others. And after reading this, one could wonder, if I have unforgiveness in my heart, does that mean I am not saved I have a couple things going on here when I look at that. When I, when I see this issue of forgiveness and think about my salvation and my eternal standing with God, I, it makes me wonder. I know that on one hand it says on the issue of our salvation that we are saved by grace through faith, right? But then I see elsewhere in Scripture where Jesus is describing how we are to pray. We say, Lord, forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. And later on in that same section, he says, For if you forgive men their sins, your Father will forgive yours. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive yours. 
Forgiveness is such a huge deal to God. I cannot overemphasize it enough. It's such a huge deal to God that he is willing to allow us to have doubt about what happens to us in eternity. Remember, the health of our relationship with God is heavily based on him forgiving us. So it's no surprise to me that the language about forgiveness is so strong here. We don't have right standing with God unless he forgives us. Our salvation is by grace through faith, and we do not deserve forgiveness, but God gives it to us anyway in abundance. I would not have the confidence, I would not want to stand before God with unforgiveness in my heart. I would not be willing to take that chance. Why does Jesus want us to forgive? Why does Jesus want us to forgive? Well, many of us, many of you have experienced the personal benefit of forgiving others. Letting them go was the best thing that ever happened to you. A weight was lifted off of your shoulders. A weight was lifted off of your life and you were set free. But it's not just for your own personal benefit that you forgive others. Think about the message that we proclaim to the world, that God proclaims to us. The message is God forgives, no matter what. And so if we don't forgive, how can we make that proclamation? We forgive because we have been forgiven. God forgives us, and then he expects us to forgive others. So who do we need to forgive and how? Well, the context of this passage is talking about our enemies, our persecutors, people who have hurt you for following Jesus, right? But I think it also applies to anyone in our lives. We have all had injuries. We have all experienced trauma in our lives. Someone has hurt you at some point in your life. Some have had little, and others have had layer upon layer of trauma. But Jesus is telling us all that we need to forgive. I know this is the whole idea of forgiving those who have hurt you makes us feel uncomfortable. It seems like an impossible task. But I want to I just say a couple things about forgiveness before we go further on how to forgive. First is, trust is not the same thing as forgiveness. Trust is something that is earned over time. Forgiving someone does not mean that you necessarily need to enter into a trust relationship with them. Trust and forgiveness are different things, okay? Also, Forgiveness is different than understanding. You don't necessarily have to understand why somebody did what they did in order for you to forgive them. You may not ever understand it. The answer may not ever become clear to you. They were messy people who did messy things, and you may not ever understand it but God still says, forgive. So how do I forgive? Now I think we understand, I think we know, if you didn't know already, forgiveness is a huge deal to God. It's very important to him, and so it needs to be important to us. So how? 
How do we do it? How do I be merciful because God is merciful? How do I forgive because God forgives? This quality of forgiveness is not really inherent to us. And depending on your situation, it may not be just a one-time thing to say, I forgive you, and then it's done, and it's gone forever. It may, make, it may take multiple times. It might take years. It might be a process, and I think that that is okay. It's okay to be in process, to be healing, to be getting there. But the main part about that is you need to be honest about it and not try to pretend The best thing you can do is to be honest and transparent before God and before people and say, I know I haven't let it go yet, but I am trying and and I'm working at it. Lord, help me. How to forgive is sometimes a step of faith. Forgiveness is not an emotion. It's an act of the will. And sometimes we need to do it in obedience to God. Forgiveness is a step of faith. I have never up to this point experienced something so vile and so unjust that it was impossible for me to forgive. I've had a hard time forgiving myself for the regretful things that I've done in the past, but whenever something was done to me, I always felt like, oh, I had it coming. So I haven't had a huge struggle with um, an unjust thing happen to me. However, I know that there are many who this is a real challenge for. And I don't feel like I can speak with much credibility on this, that particular topic. So I do want to refer to a hero of mine, and her name is Corey Tenboom. Many of you are familiar with the story, The Hiding Place about a Dutch family who owned a watchmaking shop in Amsterdam during World War II. Her family was arrested by the Nazis for hiding Jews, and they were sent to a concentration camp. Corey's father died in the prison 10 days after their arrest, and Corey and her sister were sent to the concentration camps. They were there for many, many months And Corey was released 15 days after her sister died in the camp. She was released by some clerical error. It was a fluke. And she learned later that a week after her release, everyone in her section, in her age group, in her building area, was sent to the gas chamber. And after the war, she worked with refugees. She helped nurse them back to health. And then she also started traveling around the world, telling her story and speaking about her experience with God and and about God's forgiveness. And she shares in the, the sequel to The Hiding Place in her book, Tramp for the Lord, about her challenge to forgive. And this is what I want to close with. In a chapter entitled Love Your Enemies, she tells of a story where she's confronted with forgiveness. So please bear with me. She writes, It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. 
People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I liked to think that, there, that there's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we f- confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. And the, even though I cannot find it in Scripture for it, I believed God then places a sign out there that says, no fishing allowed. The solemn faces that stared back at me not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence. In silence, they collected their wraps. In silence, they left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment, I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next, a blue uniform, and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment of skin. The place was Ravensbrook, and the man who was making his way forward right now had been a guard and one of the most cruel guards. And now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all sins are forgiven and thrown at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. Fraulein, again the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had again and again had to be forgiven, and I could not forgive. Betsy, my sister, had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death, simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us 
If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for the victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to also return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. And those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, Mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. But even so, I realized it was not my love. I had tried and did not have the power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit as recorded in Romans 5.5. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Corey Tenboom had many, many good reasons to not forgive. But she did it anyway, and she took a step of faith, and God rewarded her for it immediately. And I know that from this story, she was fortunate enough to hear an apology. Someone asked her for forgiveness. And I realize that there are many of us who will never hear an apology. Your enemy, the person or organization who hurt you, may never apologize. But I do not think that forgiveness is contingent on receiving an apology either. It is still required of us to forgive. Maybe today some old memories and old emotions have begun to get stirred up in you. It does not necessarily mean that you have unforgiveness in your heart. It might just be grief for the memory. But maybe you do need to forgive. In either case, I don't want you to keep what's going on in you to yourself. It's best to talk about it and get it out in the open. If you have unforgiveness in your heart, can you think about this? What would life look like without that grudge? Can you imagine how it would feel to not have that bitter root in your heart? If you know somebody struggling with unforgiveness, we need to pray for them. We need to be walking with them through it. 
inviting them to bring it to the Lord and to pray, 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 pray for them. So let's pray now. Father, from the story, I keep hearing the question, will you forgive? Can we forgive, Lord? Yes, I think we can, and I think you can help us do it. And I know that you have placed us in a community of people who can help us to forgive and to work through the hurt. Lord, help us to forgive. Thank you so much again for forgiving us. Now help us to offer it freely to others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This is the benediction for you from John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is the message we proclaim to each other, that God forgives. God does not condemn. This is what we proclaim to one another. This is what we are to proclaim to our family, our neighbor. This is the message to the world. This is your message. This is your good news for you and for everyone around you. So let's go. Be the church. You go. Be the church now. Ready? Set? Break. Break.